If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Psalm 73, if you would. I'm going to invite Caitlin to come. She's going to do our scripture reading, and then we're going to uh, hear from God's word from our brother Tim. Good morning, church. This is God's word from Psalm 73. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good, and I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Let's pray together just one more time briefly. Father, again, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of this psalm. And just ask now that you would speak to us through that word, through your spirit, that we might experience your presence here today and be changed to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be here with you. Uh, like Aaron said when he introduced me, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm an old friend of Aaron's from uh, Mars Hill Church Days. Uh, and I've been serving here at, at Sound City uh, as the, the interim worship director since the spring. I've got a chance to meet a lot of you, although some of you are, are still newer faces. And, and just a, a, a brief nutshell about uh, my story, I, uh, for the last kind of well, more than half my life, I've served in, in church leadership in one way or another, lots of different kind of pastoral roles over time. Uh, Aaron and I met when we were both a part of a, a large church in the area that you probably heard of if you weren't a part of, uh, called, called Mars Hill Church. I was the first worship pastor there, and then I ended up eventually going back to my hometown of Portland, Oregon, and, and planting a Mars Hill Church there, and that became a different church after Mars Hill ended and bounced around a little bit. But about a year or so ago, um, I transitioned off staff at a church for the first time since I started working for churches when I was 23. And I'm like, so that's at least five years ago, right? Uh, and uh, um, no, it's actually, I'm 47 now, so it's been over half my life uh, ago. And and I took, I needed a break more than I realized. In, in 23 years of being on church staff, a lot of it was a really fast pace. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of drama, which is always the case, but at the particular churches that I was a part of, it was a little bit more than average. And, and, uh, and I needed a break more than I realized. And so on, as, at first, as I, as I transitioned off staff, um, I kind of like, floundered around a little bit, felt like a true wilderness experience. And eventually, I ended up kind of reconnecting with some of my worship leader roots. That's how I started off. I started off as a worship pastor. And and I, and I started consulting with churches, and that's what I've been doing, serving the church more broadly, working with a lot of different churches, helping where I can, particularly in their, in their worship gatherings. I don't know if that's where God has me long term or whether this is a season or what, but if we're honest, we rarely know too much more than the next few steps in life, right? We might think we do, but, but God seems to take great joy in, in telling us and leading us otherwise. And so 
Uh, it's been a joy to be a part of, of a number of churches, Sound City among them, uh, which I, I, I kind of have history with uh, in a lot of ways, and it's just great to, to be here. I, I missed coming up last month. I've been coming up once a month. Um, I missed last month because I had the dirty old COVID boo, uh, and uh, then I got sick with something else afterwards. It's been a frustrating um, uh, couple months health-wise, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be well. I'm glad to be with you today, and I'm really glad to be in the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I've studied the Psalms consistently, kind of from my earliest days as a worship pastor, uh, because the Psalms are are really kind of the the hymnal for God's people over time. Uh, The word that gets translated as Psalms, uh, when you trace it all the way back to the the Hebrew word, uh, it's this Hebrew word, which I'll butcher the pronunciation, uh, I believe it's, it's Tehillim, which means praises. And sometimes it was called Sefer Tehillim, which means book of praises. It's the, it's the song book, the prayer book for God's people, uh, as long as there's been a people of God. Uh, it's a collection of, of songs and, and poems of praise. And what I love about it is because it, it runs the full range of human experience from the lowest lows of darkness and depression to the highest highs of, of joy and celebration. And everywhere in between, the psalmists, a lot of them were written by this guy, uh, by, by King David, but there's he only, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's less than half, actually, were written by David. A number of them don't have a name, uh, and then some of the others are attributed to various other authors. But whoever the author is, the goal always is, is praising God regardless of the situation. And that's not like Christian-y, always put a smile on it, and, and, and say that things are great no matter what. They're full of hard things like, my God, how long will you forget me forever? How long will I have only tears for my food? They ask serious questions. They deal with serious emotions in the full range of human experience. That's why I love the Psalms. They're about all of life to the glory of God. And every time you look at a psalm, I think that you should, uh, and, and this is kind of true regardless of where you're looking at the Scripture, you always look at, at what is being said in this particular passage. In this case, what is the psalmist saying? And then I think we have to zoom out and, and, and kind of reflect on how does that connect to Jesus and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection? And then we can ask the question of how should we respond? And that's kind of the process that we're going to go, go through today, looking at Psalm 73. This is one of my very favorites. Uh, and Psalm 73, it, it tells a story. It's like a, it's like a journal entry or a or a testimony that someone would stand up and give of a story in their life. It's a, it's a case study. If Psalms is the book of praises about what all of life looks like, uh, live to the glory of God, this is like a case study of what that looks like in, in one guy's particular situation. And this guy in, in this situation in, in 73 is named Asaph. We don't know a ton about him. I'm going to call him Ace for short. Um, we, we know uh, from a couple, he's only mentioned a few places in the Old Testament, and, and one of the things we know is he played the cymbals. So maybe not a full drummer, kind of a cymbalist, a percussionist of sorts. Um, it says that he led choirs and musicians. He was a Levite, which you've been learning about in Leviticus. So I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he was kind of a, a worship, uh, an Old Testament worship leader of sorts. You know, something, something similar to what a worship leader does uh, today in the life of the church. And, and Psalm 73 tells a story about when Ace 
had a profound crisis of faith. And, and, and the way he tells it is kind of like a screenplay, it, it, uh, like, like a film or any good narrative. It, there's an introduction. He introduces us to this crisis. There is escalating conflict. Then there's a climactic turning point that leads to conviction and, and eventually a conclusion and a resolution. And so we're going to kind of follow it that way, kind of, kind of follow the, the, this narrative story. And here's how it begins. It begins in verse 1, and if, and if you kind of fast forward, if you have a paper Bible or an app, you can see, and a lot of the Psalms do this, they kind of begin and end in the same place. It's a, it's a classic Eastern in general and particularly Hebrew way of telling the story, uh, kind of like Christopher Nolan in films like uh, Memento or, or The Prestige or Inception. It, it, it begins at the end, and then they kind of tell you the whole story as it unfolds of, of how they got there. And he begins and ends in verse 1 and 28 with the goodness of God. He begins, truly God is good to Israel. He ends in verse 28, it is good to be near God. But we soon in verse two get to what's really gonna go on, what, what he really wants to talk to us about, and that's his crisis. And he just comes out with it right away. He says, he says but as for me, God is good, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. And metaphorically, what he's saying here is, he, is, is God's good, but I almost denied that. I, all, I came right up to the edge of throwing in the towel on my faith altogether. Why? Verse 3, because I was envious of the arrogant. Envy meaning desiring what others have for yourself. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the English translations we have of the Bible are among the best translations of any document that the world has ever known. And yet, whenever you're translating, you're trying to find these equivalents of words uh, from one language to the next. And, and a lot of times that matches up, but sometimes it doesn't. And this is one of those cases. This word for prosperity is a word that you may have heard before. Um, it's often translated as peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And this idea of shalom, it's more than just peace. It's more than just prosperity. It's, it's this sense of, of total well-being with yourself, with others, and with God. And, and, and what Asaph is saying in the midst of this is he's saying, saying, look, shalom is meant to come from God and be for God's people. You see, this, this, how, how, how shalom is supposed to work is is that those who, like it says in verse one, uh, he says, truly God is Israel to those who are pure in heart. He says, he says God's shalom is meant for those who are pure in heart, who are devoted to God. He says, but when I look around, what I see instead is the wicked, those who are not pure in heart, those who do not belong to God, those who do not follow him. Instead, the wicked seem to be the ones who are experiencing shalom. And not God's people. And, and he's not okay with it. He, he says, this is unjust. It's not supposed to work that way. And it's eating me alive from the inside out. What is, what is Asaph doing here? He's, he's comparing himself, right? He's comparing himself. He, he looks at others. And, and whenever you look at others, you only have a limited 
perspective, right? When you look at others, if I was to look across here, I know some of you, but, but I know only a fraction. The, the, the person I know the best here, I still only know a fraction of their life. And so when I look at your life, it's so easy to think it's better. Because what am I an expert in? I'm an expert in my own life. Nobody besides God knows more deeply and more fully what my life is like, right? And so it's always going to be a tough comparison, right? He's stacking up what he limited knowledge he has of other people's lives against the deep knowledge of his own life. And shockingly, they all seem better. And he's saying, what is up? What is, what is going on here? And isn't it fascinating that you know, we don't know exactly when this was written, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of, of 3,000-ish years ago. So completely different time, completely different culture, different language, and yet nothing has really changed, has it? I jokingly call this the Instagram psalm because this is what Instagram was made for. Instagram, the reason why Instagram has become so much more popular than Twitter is because an image is always more powerful than just a word, Right? It's one thing to have somebody in 144 characters or whatever. I think they raised the limit now on Twitter. I don't do it much. Um, but, but it's one thing to say a couple sentences about your life. It's another thing to show a picture of you and your gorgeous family doing amazing things, eating incredible food, at the gym looking swole, whatever it is, you know, like, like whatever, whatever it is. Uh, uh, these are, uh, there are tools built into the app to optimize your appearance beyond human capacity, Right? That's always how comparison works. It's the universe, a, a universal human instinct across all time. But social media has given us vastly more access and tools to do it. It's not that in our day comparison is more prevalent than an Asus day. It's in our day, now we have the ability to compare ourselves to human beings across the entire freaking planet, right? Sometimes technology does help. And sometimes it doesn't, right? It's a mixed. It's always a mixed bag. Uh, And and so so we can relate to where Asaph is at. I I, I trust that all of us have done this, especially in these last couple of years, in the midst of, of, of quarantine and pandemic, in the midst of so much division and strife and economic difficulties. Everywhere you look, none of us are doing particularly well, right? And the grass has never looked greener somewhere else. Now, in the midst of that, it's not a sin to question God and say, say, how long, God? You see this phrase, how long, over and over and over again in the Psalms. It's not wrong to question God and say, what are you up to? What is going on? What is going on with our country? What is going on with the pandemic? What is going on with our government? What is going on with whatever? You fill in the blank. There's no shortage. There never has been, but today more than ever, it's, so, it's, it's, it's such a difficult and divisive time that makes comparison so easy. It's not wrong to ask God where he's at in the middle of it, but it is sin to cross over into envy. And that's where Asaph goes, and, and he doesn't go there just in an abstract way. He goes there in a lot of detail. I'm going to power through the, the next section of verses, um, but, but he makes a list and come on, we've all made a list, right? Maybe, you, maybe not bold enough to actually write the words on paper, um, but you've def- we all have lists in our mind that are similar to Asaph. He's like, look, everywhere I look, this is what I see. And he starts to list off these things. Verse four, he says, 
He says, the wicked seem to have no pain and they're fat, which in that day was a sign of prosperity. It was the skinny people that were poor and the, and the wealthy and the prosperous people that were fat. You can just flip that on its edge. Different cultural values, same kind of heart of comparison. Uh, uh, looking at body image, he says, they seem to have no troubles in verse five, unlike the rest of us. They're never sick. You know, when on Instagram, nobody has COVID, right? I mean, I guess somebody does. Uh, so people do pe- uh, occasionally post their, their sad COVID face, but, but, but usually it's more of us who actually have it or sitting around going like, oh, this is so lame. Um, they, they flaunt, in verse six, they, they flaunt their pride like jewelry. They, in verse seven, they have gluttonous appetites and foolish hearts. Verse eight, they scoff, malign, and threaten. In verse nine, they speak against God while exalting themselves. And even worse than this list, and even more disheartening, in verses 10 and 11, he says, and God's people, they actually are taken in by this message. They, they turn from God and follow these people instead. And they start to mock God and say, eh, can you even know him? Is there even any knowledge? He doesn't know what's up. In closing summary, verse 12 is his kind of footnotes for everything he sees. Behold, these are the wicked. Again, Instagram, right? Always at ease, they increase in riches, right? Always at ease, and somehow money just seems to multiply while they're just chilling, while they're posting the selfies, right? It's a serious list that Asaph makes. And I trust it sounds familiar if we're honest, right? What's on your list? Where do we tend to compare? Where do we tend to feel injustice in our lives? Where do we tend to see the wicked prospering? Is it politics? Is it economics? Is it finances, power, position, health, body image, racial issues? Is it in church leadership? Where unhealthy and abusive leaders seem to just prosper all around Well, those who seem more faithful seem to struggle in their churches. Maybe you don't all see that, but that's definitely one of mine, if you can't tell. And where does it lead? Comparison always leads where it leads Asaph. In verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This is how he feels. He says, He says, if this is what you get for actually following and trusting God, if this is what you get, what good is it? He's saying, I've tried to live according to God's word, but if I suffer while everyone else who doesn't care at all about God, doesn't give a rip, seems to prosper, what are we playing at? For all day long, verse 14, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This isn't just a general question that Asaph has. It's personal for him. He's not just seeing the wicked prosper in an abstract way. He's seeing the wicked prosper from his perspective while he suffers. And he says, why am I following God if I just keep suffering? And that's all I seem to get. And he finishes in verse 15 with saying, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's not clear exactly. There's plenty of phrases like this in the Scripture where you come to it and you're like, man, I'm assuming this is a faithful translation, but I don't get exactly what he's getting at. Um, Maybe he's saying, 
if I had, had said this publicly against God, I would have, have betrayed my fellow believers. Maybe he's saying if I had actually said this at all, but whatever it is, the, the implication I think is clear. Whatever he really meant by it, the implication is, is he's right up at the edge. He's, he's, he's at the edge of this, this metaphorical cliff like me on the edge of the stage here. He's looking over the edge and to jump is to say, forget it, I'm done. I'm no longer believing any of this. I just can't do it anymore. He's right there. He's looking over. He's counting the cost. He's weighing what will happen and how it will play out. How many of us have been there at any point in your life or maybe in the last couple years or I would suspect that if you're honest, at least somebody here today feels that way, right? I've been closer to that edge in my own life in the last year or so probably than any other point in my life. Uh, I, I shared a little bit of my story to, to transition off staff at, at a church for the first time. So again, half my life, I'm 47 now. So the last time I didn't work for a church, I was 23. It's become quite an identity crisis for me, right? And, and, and the church is no one thing for anybody and certainly not for me. There's a ton of amazing things that I experienced uh, in church leadership. There are, are, are beautiful things that I will always cherish and always remember. And I don't know that I'm done being in, in church leadership. I mean, I'm still here preaching to you today. Uh, I, just, uh, I, I even work for this church kind of. It's not the same way that I, that, that, that I used to. But in the midst of that, there's a lot of baggage for me. A lot of drama, a lot of conflict, some real abuse. And for me, just, just I, I don't need to go into the details, but for me, just to be clear, from my personal experience, uh, the worst of it happened after I left Mars Hill in, in things that happened after Mars Hill for me. And, and, and when I look around, everywhere I look, leaders either seem to be failing in the church or it seems like unhealthy, abusive leaders are prospering. It's incredibly disappointing. It's incredibly disheartening. And if I'm honest, like, it starts to feel futile, futile, you know what I'm saying? It... it, it there can be a, a, a spirit and just a, this, this heavy, sinking feeling of like, man, what are we doing? If it seems like if you have the gifts to stand on a stage and do the thing, you can get whatever you want, regardless of what your life is like, what are we doing here, you know? I have that feeling more often than I have in a long, long time because I've had more space from it. And because for the first time I'm not, you know, a, a pastor on staff at a local church in a long, long time. And it's right here with Asaph, with me at times, with I'm sure some of you at times, looking over that edge and feeling these feelings deeply that something profound happens. Asaph says, when I thought, in verse 16, when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's saying, the more I thought about it, the more it sucked the life out of me, the more I just needed to take a nap, right? The more I, I lost the will and the energy to, to, to continue until, and this is a huge until in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now, 
We don't know exactly what happened to Asaph, but we do know a little bit about the sanctuary. And you've been talking about it in uh, Leviticus. What he means by the sanctuary is almost surely the temple, the, the Jerusalem temple. And this is where where God's people gathered like this, but in Old Testament times, it was more than just a gathering place. It was where, where the physical presence of God took up residence. And, and, and it was a place of gathering. It was a place of God's glory. It was a place of worship. And we don't know exactly what happens to Asaph here. Maybe it was something supernatural. Maybe, maybe God showed up and, and, and gave him a very specific word that he doesn't record, although I think he would say it in the psalm if he's going into all these other details. But it doesn't have to be like some crazy physical manifestation of God for it to have the same effect. What happens to him is, is he encounters the presence of God in a powerful way and he receives fresh wisdom and insight. He was moved by the glory of God. He was affected. He was changed. And this leads to conviction leads to confession, ultimately leads to a, a, a complete change in his perspective. Let's hit the high points of it. First, he's convicted. God, God lets him know through his presence the, the, the future of the wicked, despite how it may seem. In verse 18, 19, 20, he says, God will set the wicked in slippery places. They will eventually fall to ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment in verse 19. And verse 20 says, when judgment comes, they will pass away like phantoms, like ghosts, like waking from a dream. They just evaporate. God says this, yes, there is injustice in this world, in this life, but there will be justice and it will come in his time, in his way, on his terms. And Asaph is, is deeply convicted in response, and, and he makes this confession. We're going to do this in a minute as well. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant before you. I was like a beast, sorry, brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. He says, I was like a, a stupid animal in my thinking. I came right up to the edge of denying your goodness and, and throwing in the towel on my faith. Father, forgive me, he says. And then it leads to this beautiful poetic affirmation that we heard in the scripture reading, and maybe you've heard it. It's, it's definitely the most popular uh, section of this psalm where he says, nevertheless, despite my envy, despite my sin, despite all my feelings of futility, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the, in the Hebrew understanding, the, his, his flesh and his heart could be translated as, as everything that makes me, me. Everything about me may fail, may disappoint, but you are my strength. And this word for strength, you'll see if you're looking in your, your paper Bible or an app, there'll be a little letter after that word for strength. Whenever you see those little letters, always check them out because there's these little text notes that help you understand more deeply what the Hebrew words were underneath. And this word for strength can also be translated as, as rock. He's saying God is the, the strength. He's, he, he's my rock. He's the solid ground 
on which I stand. Like Psalm 40 that, that creates this metaphor of like being down in a slippery pit and you can't climb your way out. And God makes your footsteps sure in the midst of that and allows you to rise up out of that pit. God is his strength. He says, I almost slipped and fell, but he became my rock. He's my portion. He's all I need. And he ends where it began. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. It's a powerful story. Some, some parts of Scripture uh, are a little harder to kind of figure out what they're really saying. Many parts of Leviticus are, too, for honest, right? Uh, some, some parts of the Scripture, it's all worth studying, but some parts are, it take a little bit more work to kind of understand, like, what is the, the culture? With Leviticus, you have, to, you have to do a lot of work to understand what's the background, what, what's going on in the temple, and, and what do these sacrifices stand for and mean, and, and how do they apply? It's work worth doing. But some parts of Scripture like this, it's like, man, Maybe the language is a little clunky for our day, but it, it's, it's just absolutely relevant, right? It's easy to apply because it, it's so common. It's a powerful testimony, a powerful story that I relate to so closely, and I'm assuming so many of you can as well. And I want to now, with, the, with the, the few minutes we have left, to just, just reflect. Reflect on both how Jesus connects to this and what that means for us and how we should respond. And, and there's a number of lessons that we could talk about. I could talk, and I have talked in this, I've, I've used this psalm to, to teach about a lot of different things over the years. But I want to focus on three things, two briefly and one in a little bit more depth. And the first is just this. It's a key lesson. Beware of the comparison trap. And I want us to, to think about Jesus in the midst of this. I believe that when we come to the Psalms, uh, 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 Martin Luther wrote more about Psalms than anything else in all of his works. And, and then there was a guy who was a good Lutheran in, in, in Germany in uh, World War II times named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, and he was way into the Psalms. And he wrote this beautiful little book called Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. And, and Bonhoeffer says, in the Psalms, the psalmist is praying, Jesus is praying, and we are praying. Martin Luther's perspective was, except by, by clear statement otherwise, all of Scripture can be uh, identified with Jesus. And I believe that's true with the Psalms. So whenever we come to a Psalm and we look at Asaph's story, our assumption should be that whatever Asaph was experiencing, as he had opportunity to look around and compare himself, Jesus experienced that even more profoundly. Well, whatever the human depths of, of depression and anxiety are that are expressed in the Psalms, Jesus experienced that more deeply than any other human being, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's betrayed and later executed. And likewise, the, the highest highs of joy and celebration, Jesus knows more of that. And so, so we always want to look and see how Jesus identifies with the Psalms and connects to and fulfills and Jesus identifies with Psalm 73 in these circumstances more than anyone ever has, I believe, because he was the only person who was perfectly righteous. Asaph makes some bold statements about keeping his heart totally pure. It wasn't pure, but Jesus was. 
And when Asaph's looking around, there's at least a little bit of self-righteousness, like I'm the good guy, and all these bad guys are, are, are seem to be doing well. Well, Jesus was the only ever good person to have ever lived or whoever will live. He was the most righteous person ever, and therefore he was the most persecuted. He endured the most suffering. He endured the most injustice of anyone else. If anyone ever was going to struggle with comparison, it's Jesus. And he would have the right to do. He's the only one for whom he could look at others and and call that out without sin. And yet in the midst of it, unlike Asaph, Jesus perfectly trusted in his father in all things, at all times. And, and it's not that he didn't struggle. We see him struggling. We get little glimpses into his mind and some of his struggles. He asks a question in the garden. He says, he says Father, if there's any other way to get this done, meaning that he, he knows he's about to be betrayed and be crucified, he says, he says, if there's any other way, show me. He uses this metaphorical language. If, if there's any other way that, than to drink this cup, let it, let it, not, let it pass from me. And yet he always comes back to this kind of resolved place that we, we sang about in that old rewritten hymn that we just sang. He always comes back to this prayer, thy will be done, your will be done, Father. Jesus is our example of what it looks like to see injustice and to trust God in the midst. As long as there is sin in this world, we will tend to compare ourselves with others. So watch your hearts. Doesn't mean, I'm not saying Instagram is inherently evil, uh, it, it, it's generally neutral. It's what you're going to make of it. But some of you who really struggle with this may not need to look at it as often as you do or maybe need to delete it altogether. And maybe you need to just go on a fast for a while and then see if you can handle it after a couple months. I'm not preaching any one thing for that, but I just want to encourage you, watch your heart. If, if there are things that enhance this tendency in you to compare in an unhealthy way, maybe you should do something about that. Second. Brief lesson, justice ultimately belongs to God. The world is full of injustice. We should care deeply about injustices, but we should also never forget that ultimate final justice, where things are actually finally made right, will never happen until Jesus returns. Ultimate final justice only comes from God when Jesus returns. It only comes on His terms, And it only comes in his time. And again, remember Jesus in the midst of this. Remember Jesus who who willingly submitted himself to the greatest injustice of all time. He could have overthrown Rome. He could have, this is my joke, uh, because this is so much of the heart of Jewish leadership in that day, he could have made Israel great again. They weren't MAGA, they were MEGA in Jesus' day. And that's why they killed him. They, they, their view of Messiah was, was a revolutionary political leader to overthrow Rome and make Israel great again, restore Israel to power and glory like in the days of King David. I'm not getting political here. I'm telling you history. Just, just bear with me. He could have done that, but instead he submitted himself to Rome. He didn't overthrow Rome. He submitted himself to Rome all the way to one of the most horrifying and torturous deaths that has ever been invented at the hands of Rome or any other nation, crucifixion. And he did it to pay for our sin 
leaving us with the promise that one day things will all be made right. And he said that in this world, we will be like him. That means there's going to be injustice that we're going to face. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us when we face it. It means that justice, it's not that it will never come, but it's deferred. It's deferred. We're waiting for it. We're waiting until Jesus comes. It's not on us to enact that justice, and especially not to enact vengeance. In the words of Hebrews, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus never promises. He never promises to right all the wrongs in this life. He promises to do it when he returns. And I just want to encourage you to trust him until then. And lastly, the point I want to just camp on with our, our, our few remaining minutes is to seek God's presence. When you are, are stuck, when you are at the edge, looking over the cliff of your faith, when, when that sense of futility feels like a hundred-pound backpack weighing you down and all you see is an uphill hike, sometimes the last thing you think of is to seek God's presence in the midst of it. You feel like he's abandoned you, and yet he's here. He's here with you. It says he's close to the brokenhearted. Life is filled with crisis, both personally and all around us. It's filled with injustice. It's so easy to compare ourselves. And the more we focus on these things, the more we end up in the same place as Asaph, in despair and in, in futility. Now, more than any other time, I think we, we trend in this way. It certainly has been in, in my life. Even among those who claim to be God's people, I see the same pattern everywhere I look of Asaph's day. Pride, arrogance, greed, ambition, abuse, nationalism, false gospels, counterfeit faith. I see these things celebrated and emulated and prospering both nationally as well as very specific people in my life in broken relationships over these issues. And so what are we supposed to do about it when it's so disheartening and so disappointing? Where do we turn? What pulls us out of those deep, dark places? And what brings us back to a place of faith and trust? And what I will say to you today is for me and most people I know, it's not mere knowledge or facts or ideas. Again and again, it is the experience of the presence of God and his goodness. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to create a false conflict between knowledge and experience as if, uh, as if they're mutually exclusive, as if you have to pick one. Both are incredibly important. And there are certainly traditions that overemphasize experience certain kind of more charismatic traditions. If you don't know what I'm talking about with that, you're totally fine. Uh, but if you do, you, you, can, you can maybe relate. There are, there are traditions that, that, uh, that oppose knowledge and, and de-emphasize even the Scriptures in favor of, of your personal experience. 
Maybe some of you come from, from some traditions like that. But I've been around this church for five months, and I was around it a lot when this church was, was first planted in the early days. It was called Mars Hill Shoreline, and I, I was very much a part of that. I know where you come from, even if you're, you're newer to that. And I think I know you guys well enough to know that that, that overemphasis on experience is probably not Sound City Bible's number one issue. Most of us will err on the side of knowledge. We can be so Western Christianity, American evangelicalism, can be so intellectually oriented. And I'm so guilty of this too as a pastor. As if every as if every single problem can be fixed by reading a book or listening to a sermon or podcast, right? And like I say, I'm 100% guilty. Uh, so many times I'm, I sit with somebody in hard things and the best I can come up with is, is to tell them to read this or listen to that, right? In retrospect, I wish I would have spent a lot more time just, just sitting with people and say, I hear you. I feel the same way. God is here, and I don't know what to do either. For me, that would be refreshing from a pastor now and then. Uh, maybe, maybe for you guys, you're like, well, what am I paying you for? Um, just, just, just consider a couple things here. Things, these are things that I've been reminded of more recently. Only a fraction of human beings have the temperament and personality to connect with deeply with, with big abstract ideas from a monologue, right? Am I right? Now are you listening, right? Uh, like, like, I'm sure doing the very best I can, I have lost plenty of you because there's so many of us that are just not wired in such a way as to do well sitting listening to a monologue. And also, don't forget, uh, a friend recently reminded me uh, of this. Widespread literacy is less than 100 years old. Think about the implications of that. It didn't really catch on in America until the 40s or 50s. It hasn't even been 100 years that you could assume that everybody could read. And one of the incredible implications of that is, is that is that uh, personal Bible and book reading as a part of the Christian life is incredibly young. And if you just did the math of like, okay, the church has been two th- around for 2,000 years and, uh, and we've been reading for about 100 of those in a more widespread way, that's 95% of the life of the church has been in a context where the only way that you understood the Scripture was somebody reading it to you like I am here today because the people didn't read. The only people who read were the educated people who ended up being teachers and such. Asaph wasn't pulled back from the cliff by, by big ideas. He wasn't convinced that his feelings were wrong by rational propositional truths. He came to the sanctuary and experienced the presence of God and was undone from the inside out. And we see this in Jesus' life. The Gospels mentioned eight times, at least that I could find, how Jesus would would get up early and withdraw to desolate places, wilderness, desert-type places, lonely places. And he did so to pray and be alone with God, his heavenly Father. So Jesus, God in the flesh, he needed every day to go have a deep and profound connection, communion, and experience 
of God's presence. Being God himself, he still needed that. How much more do we need that? And powerful things happened in these times. Uh, uh, That's when Satan showed up at one of these times and tempted him. And he he goes back and forth for these, these 40 days. Uh, sorry, he fasts for 40 days. He goes back and forth with Satan. And then, then angels come and God appears to him and, and strengthens him. It happens uh, again when he's uh, away praying that uh, what we call the transfiguration when God uh, appears to him again. It happens in Gethsemane where angels show up and, and strengthen him for what's about to happen as he's betrayed and, and going to be killed shortly. Even Jesus needed this. Following Jesus is not just knowing true things about him. It's being moved by those true things. It's being affected. It's it's those true things being experienced in your life. That's why James says, oh, you believe in one God? Good. Even the demons believe. Demons believe plenty of true things about God. They probably believe more true things about God than we do in some ways. But it doesn't honor God. Because what honors God is believing true things and worshiping Him in response and being changed by Him, responding to Him, experiencing His presence. And Asa sought God's presence. He had to go in in a very specific place, the temple, in the sanctuary. But because of Jesus, now we can experience God's presence through the Holy Spirit who lives in the people of God. And so I want to challenge you today to seek God's presence. How do we do that? Through His Word. Time in the Scripture. Letting it soak into us. Not just, not just going for quantity. Like, sweet, I read ten pages. God's so smiley-faced with me, right? <laughs> and He's so frowny-faced if I didn't, right? No, it's, it doesn't matter if you... Maybe, you maybe, maybe time with God for you is one word of Scripture. One verse. It's spending time letting it soak deeply into you. It's in worship, praising Him. Songs stick with us, and songs for the life of the church have have been a much more effective way at getting God's truth into the minds and hearts of God's people than big ideas from monologues like this, right? Songs, they stick with us. So through His Word, through worship, through prayer, through confession to God and to one another, and through community, time with God's people. In all of this, Jesus is not just our example. He's the one who actually makes it possible. He died for all of our envy, all of our comparison, all of our misplaced objections and pushback against him. Through his perfect life of worship, we can can approach creator God and we can know him and we can experience him and we can be moved by his glory. And that's this is why I do the work that I do now. I don't know exactly where God is, is leading me longer term. Maybe I'll end up being a local church pastor again. I'm not sure. I've had a lot of questions and I needed some time to kind of sort some things out in my life. But one thing I am sure of is that I still continually encounter the living God through gatherings of worship with his people. And I want everybody to experience that. That's where faith became real to me in my early teens in the the suburbs of of Portland, Oregon. And after all these years since that, I still, 
multiple times this week preparing this message, multiple times this week preparing to sing these songs. I'm choked up in my office. That's what moves me. That's what keeps me. Well, that's when I'm standing on the edge. It isn't somebody's big ideas. Not that there's anything wrong with ideas. It's the presence of the real, true God saying, I'm here with you. And I'm not going to give you all the answers that you want right now, but just hang in there. Stay with me, you know? That's what I want to encourage you and call you to today. That's why I call my ministry Moved by Glory. That's my shorthand definition of why we gather together and praise Him. The purpose of gathered worship is to be moved by the glory of God through word and song and sacrament. And so I want to encourage you now to be honest with him about where you tend to compare yourself. Be honest about the injustice that eats at you most and take your complaints and your frustrations to Jesus to seek his presence, to trust him in the midst that he is working and he is with you regardless of how you feel. And let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the words of Asaph. I thank you for him committing this to, to paper thousands of years ago so that we could even hear today and, and it could be good news to even our modern day of social media and pandemic and all the wackiness of our world. Father, I just ask that you would convict us now of our comparisons, that you would help us to trust you for justice. And that as we come to you now, that you would give us, even here as we sing and respond to you, a fresh sense of your presence. That you would change our hearts, that you would convict us where there is sin. That you would give hope where we feel hopelessness. That you would give faith where we feel futility. That you would change our hearts so that we can pray with Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.